Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. Would you honor the reading of God's word by standing with me, please, if you're able to? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the reading of God's word. That is what we, as God's people, believe. It is especially, I think, encouraging to us to have our Asian brothers and sisters with us, not only celebrating baptism, but confessing that as our own little example right here on this corner in 24018, that the creed transcends cultures, geography, languages. So it's a beautiful thing to have you worshiping with us today and to see your parents baptized. That's awesome. Um, so we're not preaching the creed. We're preaching the gospel. We're not preaching the creed. We're preaching the Bible and the creed, though, is a beautiful summary of our faith. And if you did not pick one up, uh, a copy of it, we have them for you. There's some in the commons, and we'd love for each of you to have one. Uh, hopefully they made their way down into the Chinese fellowship at some point here uh, in the last week or so. Um, last Sunday, we were reminded, though, not to say it too quickly. Those who were in the video helping us do this um, were coached a little bit to say, hey, this is... A very important thing that you're saying so and you could see the sobriety and the like even the contemplation do I believe what I'm saying you know so I want to say to you this morning don't say and Carrie's brother Carrie said it last week don't say it too quickly oh yeah I oh yeah I believe in God slow down Right? Don't say it too quickly because, and the reason he gave last week, do you remember, do you remember what uh, Brother Kerry said last week about why not to say it too quickly? One of the reasons he gave was because you are at the same time disavowing something else. When you say, if you say it mean I believe this about God and his Son and the Spirit, you're at the same time saying, I disavow these other things. I don't believe in them. This is what to me seems so incredibly uh, valuable about the creed. The creed in some form 
has been displacing the world's most prominent cultural and political narratives for 1,800 plus years all over the world in Russia, Argentina, Montana, Ohio, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, China, all over the world, people have been saying no over and over and over again to the spirit of the age, declaring that Jesus Christ alone deserves exclusive allegiance, total dependence, and willing obedience. So for us today, when the cultural gods out there demand that we bow to them, whatever form they may take, and when the God of self in here demands that we bow to him or her, is the self a him or a her? Ooh, that's a philosophical question. When those gods out there and in here demand that you bow to them, you can, you can disavow them and return to the gospel and say, I don't believe those things anymore. I don't, I don't believe in materialism. I'm just, I'm, gonna let the, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not gonna let the pull of materialism, the new car, the new house, the new clothes that I think I have to have to be happy, I'm not gonna bow to them. I believe in Jesus Christ. When you feel that attraction, when you feel the pull, preach the gospel to yourself. When someone offers you the chalice of power and success and status, and recognition. When someone says, here, take the poison chalice, it's amazing. When you're tempted to check into the Hotel California, remember what Don Henley said. <laughs> he said, the American dream, listen, he said, commenting on the song, he said, there's a fine line between the American dream and the American nightmare. And there really is. You can check out, but you can never leave. There's really only one way to get out. The only way to get out of the Hotel California, is, and really that song is about moving from innocence to, a, to an addicting experience. The only way to get out of that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When your primal appetites grow into a beast that cannot be tamed, when food turns to lust, when shopping turns to lust, when humor turns to the lust of sarcasm and mockery of other people, when sex turns to lust, when words turn to lust through gossip, when all of these appetites that were once good start to be untamable and, and take over your life, disavow their power and their, and their authority over you. Turn away from their power and their authority by confessing again, I don't believe in those things. I don't have to have those things. Those are good things gone bad. I'm gonna say I believe in Jesus Christ. The only way to get out is to let Jesus get in and take over. And so that's what we want to think about today. And let me explain what I mean. Um, we're making the turn from part one to part two of the creed. So if you have it in front of you, you'll see part one is about creation. Part two, which talks about Jesus, God's only son, is about salvation. So creation, salvation, and then sanctification. Three parts. But here's the thing I said a couple weeks ago. Between part one and part two is a white space. Do you see the white space? 
on your card there between part one and part two. It's really not a white space. In the Bible, it's a dark space. In the Bible, it's a black space. In Scripture, it's a place of fallen space and darkness until God speaks again. That's where part two of the creed takes us. From that dark space, right? Because through the fall, a hundred billion failures occur. Only through Christ can those 100 billion failures disappear on a hill he created, as one modern, really popular song says, on a hill he created, abandoned in darkness to die, you gladly chose surrender, what? So will I. That's where we are. Between part one and part two is Jesus gladly choosing to surrender on your behalf. So when you confess the second part of the creed, you are getting in on that. You're, you're lining your life up with that. You're saying, oh God, Jesus, you gladly chose surrender, so will I. I believe that Jesus is not just the Savior, he's my Lord. I will surrender my life to Jesus. Now here's the cool thing about the creed. So it's the second, I wanna focus on the second part today. I'm just gonna focus on uh, uh, really two lines at the beginning of the second part. And I wanna say, here's what's happening. In part two, this part about Jesus himself, you'll notice it's the largest part of the creed. So if you just take a glance at your card again and just look at it, kinda hold it away from you and look at it for a second, you'll see the largest part of the creed centers on Jesus. Uh, the gospel center of the creed is, what we, is how we would refer to that. And what's happening there is the, the, the creed is explaining how salvation works. So how does it work? The first thing we want you to learn about salvation and how it works is, is really what we're gonna talk about today. Um, it only works because God chose to become a man to redeem us. So that's where we're going. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Those two points are what we're gonna think about today. Conceived of the Holy Spirit means he was truly God. So the first, first point is this. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's truly God, he's fully God, he's fully divine. That's where we start. That's how the, that's how the solution to the problem of mankind will start. God himself will get involved. God himself will, will solve the problem. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is about God choosing to unite himself with the human race because it's the only possible way for salvation to occur. That's what these two lines describe. God choosing to unite himself with the human race. It's the great mystery of the incarnation. Now to do this first point, let me ask you to look back at Luke chapter one and uh, drop down to verse 35. Luke chapter one and verse 35. The angel answered Mary. Mary, Mary at this point is, is confused, she's unsure, she's been promised that she's actually gonna bear the Messiah. What? What are you talking about? How's this gonna happen? How am I gonna carry the Christ child? I, I don't even know a man. I have not had physical relationship with a man. Mary says to the angel, how will this be? And the angel answers her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. Back up in verse 31, the uh, angel said, you will conceive in your own womb. And the Holy Spirit's the one who's going to accomplish this. Again, the creed is just echoing Scripture. The creed is just echoing the Bible. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Comes right out of Luke chapter 1. Comes right out of Matthew chapter 1. Both of the nativity stories read exactly the same way. How is this going to happen? It's going to happen through the miracle of the incarnation. The way God's going to get involved in rescuing mankind is to be divinely uh, active in, in, in... making something happen that's never, ever, nor ever will happen again happened in, in Christ being conceived. The obvious point of this all throughout verse 35, Holy Spirit, holy, he will re- forever reign, of his kingdom will be no end. Uh, even, even in verse 35 it says, therefore the child will be called holy. The obvious point is that, the, is that the son of God, the child, is going to be holy, perfect, righteous, divine. Now let me just take the, one more step in this and, and stay with me for just a second. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to move fast but not too fast. We're, I'm a little tighter chain but I, I really want to keep this in front of you. Uh, so listen faster. We're listening as fast as we can. Okay. Don't miss this point. If God was going to get involved in saving humanity, and he was going to take the form of a man, would that man need to be sinless? Yes, absolutely. He would have to be without sin. Because by definition, God is without sin, right? So here's what's happening in this, in this narrative. The Holy Spirit is conceiving in Mary not your average earthly man. He will be fully man. He will be fully human, but he won't be just like. He won't be exactly like every other human being. Gabriel is describing something that's going to happen. Jo- Joseph's conspicuous absence So here's how Jesus could be sinless. Joseph is absent. The son of Adam, the son of 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 Adam is absent, which means the Spirit of God is breaking the chain of original sin. That's what's happening. Because every person who's ever lived has inherited a sin nature. We're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Every single person in the world is born with the virus. Everybody's operating system is corrupted, except one. Now, how would that happen? How would that happen? Something would be have to, had to be very different about the way he was conceived and born, and yet it would also have to be very really fully human in its process. And that's exactly what you get with Christ. You get that he is both fully divine The Holy Spirit's going to conceive, but he's also a man in your womb, Mary. He's going to be your child. And if you look at verse 31, you go on through the, go back back up to uh, verse 31, rather, and and you'll see it, it says these kinds of things. In your womb, and you will bear a son. She will carry for nine months, and then bear a son. He will be fully human. 
So that, the first part is that he's fully God. The second part is that he will be fully man. So think about that with me for a second. And this is really just, it's mind-blowing to think that not only is he conceived by the Holy Spirit, he's truly God, but he's also really born, really born by a woman, born of a woman, the apostles will go on and say over and over again, truly, really, fully physical and human. So in recent days, well, in the, within the last year or so, we've had Theo and Jack, little Theo, little Jack, little, little Bowen, I think the three most recent little boys in our congregation. It is a historical fact, just like those three boys were born and live here today, our most recent boys here in the church. It is a historical fact that the baby boy Jesus was born and lived way back then, 2,000 years ago. It is a historical reality that not only did she give, not only did she conceive, but she gave birth to her firstborn son, and he is fully human, fully man. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. One, one of my favorite pastors of the uh, early church period, probably the most influential theologian of the fourth century, is Athanasius. Athanasius is an amazing figure. He was not a big guy. He was, they, called him the, they, they called him a dwarf, really. He was a small man, uh, but he was a formidable, a formidable theologian and defender of Nicene Orthodoxy. Listen to what he says. Uh, listen to what he says about what Jesus did and the combination of both God and man in one person. Athanasius writes this. He did not simply will Jesus did not simply will himself into existence. He didn't just will himself to be embodied. But instead, he takes a body of our kind, and not merely so, but from a spotless and stainless virgin, not knowing a man, a body clean and in very truth pure from intercourse of men. For being himself mighty and the craftsman of everything, he prepares a body for himself, in the virgin as a temple unto himself and makes it the place of his dwelling. And thus taking from our bodies one of like nature, because all were under penalty of the corruption of death, he then gave it over to death instead of all so that he might bring them back toward incorruption. Instead of all. He gives himself. This is just mind-blowing that, that the creator of the world would, would so lovingly care about us that through his son, he would take our form. He would take a human form and he would, and he would, be, he would be truly and fully human. Like he would, if you cut him, he would bleed. If you punched him, he would hurt. If you beat him, he would, he would feel it. He, would, he was fully human. He would suffer and he would die. He was both truly God and truly man. And this is what the first Christians, the early Christians, were compelled to confess because, because over and over again they saw that he was, to be sure, not your average human person. He was 
He was amazing. He was, he was divine. And so they concluded that he must be the son of God. There were lots of other conclusions people drew about who Jesus was and their, his identity, but the church soon rejected those. The church, the church rejected that he, that he wasn't really the son of God and just kind of got adopted into the divine family along the way at his baptism. Church rejected that. Others from a different angle said, well, he wasn't really fully human. He just appeared to be human. He's really divine. He's clearly a miracle worker. He's kind of God in a phantom form who just moves around places. And, and no, the church rejected that too. They said, no, he, John, the apostle said, no, no, we, we talked to him. We saw him. We, we touched him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him. He was fully human. The church was compelled to confess exactly what you are confessing. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yes, fully divine, but he was also born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary, fully human in one person. Absolutely mind-blowing. In one person and... Brother Carey threw out the term of the hypostatic union last week. Basically, that term just means that the two substances, the substance of God and the substance of mankind, were mysteriously mingled into one person, not two Jesuses, one person. And it will forever be like that. Like he, does, he never gets unincarnated. And theologians for the last couple thousand years have been hammering out those details and saying this really is what we believe. In one person, forever, God united himself to man. That's why the Nicene Creed will say he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He's the eternal, eternally begotten son, not made. He's of one essence with the Father but for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit's power, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary was made a man. It's a great mystery. The incarnation is absolutely mind-blowing, which, by the way, is why Christians will use the language of mystery. And the apostles, when they use the language of mystery, do not use the language of mystery as a cop-out for Christianity. They... The apostles don't use the language of mystery anytime they don't understand something. Well, don't understand that. We'll just call it a mystery. That's not the way they do it. They don't write or argue outside of the boundaries of conventional language and wisdom. They weren't stupid pre-modern people. They were thoughtful, intelligent people who were convinced that this man was very different. So they, they employ the language of mystery. Now, when the Bible uses the language of mystery, it does so in two ways. First of all, you'll see this in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians three, other places. Uh, the mystery will be a reference to Christ, who is, so the gospel is no longer a mystery. The mystery has been revealed. The curtain's been pulled back. The unveiling has occurred. The fulfillment of the gospel promise for the Messiah is Jesus Christ. No questions asked. Nothing else about the mystery in that sense remains. We don't wonder who it is. We don't wonder who the Messiah is going to be. So the Bible often will use mystery in the sense of Jesus being the full and final answer to the mysterious plan of the gospel. Paul will talk about that. 
But the Bible also uses mystery in a second sense. Uh, Do you remember in Deuteronomy where it says something like this, the secret things, they belong to the Lord? There's some things we will never know the answer to. So if somebody says, you know, hey, we're going to find that out in heaven. We're going to find out in heaven by and by. Maybe not. I think there's a lot of things you're not going to know in heaven. Lots. So there's this secret. There's this, like, God is mysterious. It's unfathomable. It's uh, incomprehensible. It is, it is amazing and awe-inspiring. So when the Bible uses the language of secret and mystery, it's designed to point you to a place or bring you to a place of worship and adoration and, and, and confession of, of God. Like, he's an amazing mystery. And so the Bible will use mystery in that sense, that it wants to drive you to worship. It doesn't want to drive you to everything, to figure everything out. Let me show you both uses in one place. Turn to First, uh, first Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to try to bring it in for a landing as we move toward First uh, Timothy 3. So where is that? If you get to Hebrews, have you gone too far? Yes. First Timothy chapter 3. It's a lot of pressure doing a Bible drill when you're the guy, you know, doing it. Like, I don't, I don't know. Where is it? Oh, okay. You with me? First Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. Watch for both. Watch for both. The mystery has been revealed in Christ but it's also driving us to a place of worship and never being able to comprehend it. Look at this. So Paul's in 1 Timothy 3 says, I hope to come to you soon. Verse 14, I'm, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing, uh, if I don't get to you soon, so I'm writing this letter so that you'll know how to behave, conduct yourselves in the church which is the household of God. And by the way, and then boom, he kind of snaps back to this, like he just hits that, he hits pause on the church instruction for a few minutes, and he he snaps back to this gospel confession of faith. It's probably a hymn that the church was singing early on. I think most uh, New Testament scholars see this text as a hymn or a hymn fragment. It was a song that the church was singing. And so Paul's wanting to say, hey, uh, by the way, now that you got me thinking about the gospel, remember, great indeed we confess is the mystery. Verse 16. Great indeed we confess the mystery of the incarnation. What do you mean, Paul? Well, like this old song goes. He's he's, he's He's like, remember the old song. It says God was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Christ was, God was the manifest, uh, Christ was the manifestation of God in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit means uh, he was justified by the Spirit. I think that means through the resurrection. The Spirit of God, the Father and the Spirit working with the Son to raise Him from the dead. Paul talks about it in Romans 1. 
I think the second verse there is a, a reference to the resurrection. And then he's seen by angels, right? He's seen by angels at the resurrection. And then he's proclaimed among the nations and he's believed on by people all over the world. And then he ascends, taken up into glory. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So you saw the first part, he's manifested in the flesh. We don't wonder how anybody is saved anymore. We know the full mystery of gospel um, redemption is in Jesus Christ. That part's pretty clear. He was manifested in the flesh. But where's the second part? Where's the other use? Where, the other use is at the beginning of the verse. Great indeed. Great. In fact, the word in the original language uh, starts with the prefix mega. Uh, so like mega, huge, like this is a mega confession. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. In fact, one New Testament scholar says, yeah, yeah, we know it's in Christ, but it's still blowing our minds. It's still incomprehensible. That's why we confess as an act of worship that we will never fully understand. We will never fully understand the, the way God became a man. We will never fully understand that. Not only, so we, won't, we will not fully understand the technical, biological amazement of it. We'll never fully understand that. But I don't, I don't think we'll, well, it'll be a long time before we understand the love that motivated it. The love behind. Like, why would you give up everything for somebody who deserved nothing? Why would you do that? I would, would you do that? J.I. Packer writes, love moved the miracle of the incarnation. Love prompted the miracle of the incarnation. And our part, he goes on to say, is not to speculate about it and to scale it down, but to wonder and love and be amazed. Do you know there's all sorts of things that you love that you don't understand? You just think about it for a few minutes. There's all sorts of things you love that you don't understand. In fact, the things that you love the most, this is what's crazy about it, the things you love the most, and you maybe even know a lot about it, even more than other people who say they love it. The things you love the most are the things that are most fully inexplicable. I'm talking about everything from science to the arts to sports. There's a deal on NPR again yesterday. Um, this was about football. Did anybody, hear, did anybody hear the story about Pop Warner and the other guys up at the school where, where football really made the turn in 1907? So in 1907, some guy launches. It's football season, right? Still? For one more day? Till today? We got one more day of football? It was like, please be done with football. <laughs> All right. But like in 1907, true story, as much as, in as much as these facts are recorded accurately, in 1907, some guy launches this rugby-like football in a spiral movement. And there's no record of that happening prior to that date. And he launches this pass way downfield, and they'd never seen anything like it before. And the writer in her new book who's describing football making that change from 1906, 1907, the writer says it was beautiful. That's what I'm talking about. Finally, somebody says a tight spiral is beautiful. 
But she uses the language of beautiful. And we use the language of beautiful when we want to describe something beyond the technical. So whether it's football or fishing or an art form that you love or whether it's creation out there or whether it's a relationship or whether it's your most treasured relationship, the things that you love the most, listen, they're inexplicable. Why would that not be true of God? It is true of God. The incarnation is an amazing, inexplicable mystery. That doesn't mean it's logically um, deficient. It doesn't mean that it's physically impossible. Clearly, it's, I mean, clearly it's, it's a, a miracle, but it's very plausible, a very plausible miracle. So, great indeed, listen, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He, he rose from the dead, seen by angels. He's been preached among the nations, and you have believed, and we long for him to return in glory. He ascended, and he will return again. I'm staking my life on that. We're going to sing a song, and this song is about the incarnation of Jesus. I want you to watch for and listen to mystery on both levels. The mystery explained and the mystery that remains. Listen for both. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we're no longer wondering whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you for the promise fulfilled in Christ. But God, we also thank you that the mystery somehow will be inexplicable because it's so amazing. It draws us to worship and adoration and to stop fighting in speculation about how it could happen, but to yield, to surrender, to embrace. Give us the ability to voice with genuine faith this morning the wondrous mystery. And for those who have not yet embraced Christ, come. Come and behold. Come and embrace the wondrous mystery that is Christ. Well, let's, let's sing it together. John, will you lead us? Sing it as a confession of faith.